Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Caswell and I'm here with my co-host Selena. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. And today we're really excited to be joined by Professor Sanjay Sisodia. Sanjay is a professor of neurology at the UCL Queen's Square Institute of Neurology and an honorary consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and the Epilepsy Society. Sanjay studied medicine at the University of Cambridge and Guy's Hospital before training in neurology at Oxford and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. He was awarded his PhD for working in brain magnetic resonance imaging in epilepsy and his key interests are epilepsy, difficult to treat epilepsy, epilepsy genetics and treatment response genetics and translational neurology. He runs several um, epilepsy and specialist epilepsy genomics clinics and is the chief investigator of several international projects. Recently, Professor Sisodia was appointed as the Institute of Neurology's Deputy Director for Sustainability and Climate Change, and his research interests also include the impact of climate change on neurological disorders. Sanjay, thank you for joining us and welcome to to Brain Stories. Thank you very much for inviting me. So maybe we can start by hearing directly kind of from you a little bit about your research interests and what your, your work is on at the moment. Well, my research is driven by my clinical work. Uh, And in my clinical work, uh, which is a very specialised practice, I see people with difficult-to-treat epilepsies. Um, Now, you may know that epilepsy is not one condition, but a whole group of conditions with a a range of different causes and different features. Um, But about one in three of the epilepsies are difficult to treat, which means that um, with all the medications that we have available, uh, with other treatment options like ketogenic diets or even surgery, seizures continue to happen. Uh, And in association with this, there are a range of um, additional difficulties called comorbidities. So my practice is almost entirely now composed of seeing people who have these difficult to treat epilepsies. And that's what drives my research to try to understand why people have these difficult to treat epilepsies, what's going on in the brain, um, and how that understanding can help us improve the treatment options that might be available. And these can obviously be really debilitating conditions. Are you are these difficult to treat epilepsies generally things that start in childhood or can they, you know, kind of span the whole lifespan of an individual? So both. So um, many of the difficult to treat epilepsies that I see did start in childhood. Many of them have a genetic cause, but not only. But some can also start later in life in adulthood and still be difficult to treat. Are these difficult to treat epilepsies, are they a sort of specific set on their own or is this just the end of a continuum? Are they, are they like normal epilepsies but worse or do they sort of, are they actually a distinct group? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure that we have the real answer to that yet, but certainly 
there can be a type of epilepsy within which there are people who have that type of epilepsy and respond well to drugs, and other people who appear to have the same epilepsy and don't respond to medication. But there are also a group of epilepsies where it seems like most of the people who have that condition have um, uh, seizures that are very difficult to control with medication. You mentioned the genetics underlying these diseases. Now, what has that told us about the kind of mechanisms of these difficult-to-treat epilepsies? Have they given insights into kind of biological pathways that we can then target? Yes, they have. They have. It's been a very interesting journey in epilepsy genetics over the last 10, maybe 20 years. And what we're seeing is that many of the clinical pictures that we recognised as practising clinicians, what we call syndromes, um, are now turning out to have a genetic cause. So we first saw a group of people who we thought had the same thing. We didn't know what the cause was. But with genetic technologies available to us today, we can work out what the genetic cause is by studying a group of people with the same condition and finding, hopefully, that they have a change in the same gene. The range of genes involved in the epilepsies, especially the severe epilepsies that we're talking about, is really broad. Um, and, and many, many different types of gene with different types of processes, different pathways within which they um, reside, have been shown to be involved. So, for example, there are some epilepsies which arise as a result of genetic alterations in genes that encode iron channels. And that sort of stands to reason because epilepsy is a disorder of brain excitability and brain excitability depends on iron channels. And so that sort of makes you know, good sense. But there are also a whole range of other genetic epilepsies which don't directly involve uh, alterations in iron channel genes. And so actually there's a huge range um, and we're learning a lot about the biology of the epilepsies generally from this um, gene-driven perspective. Um, this may be quite a naive question. I'm more of a sort of systems neuroscientist. But I hear you sort of describing these as um, genetic epilepsies. What other sorts of epilepsies are there then? Are they, are, are they not all genetic in nature? Or? So my own view is that it's likely that people's genetic makeup has some influence on their epilepsy. So sometimes there may be a change in their genetic makeup that is so drastic, if you like, um, that by itself it's enough to cause that person to have seizures and associated features. But I think that there's probably also a contribution from less drastic changes in many other people who have epilepsy. So small changes, common variation in lots of different genes adding up to contribute to the chance of that person having seizures. And so it could be, for example, that somebody has seizures ostensibly because they had head injury. We know, for example, soldiers who suffer head injuries in conflict um, uh, may go on to develop epilepsy. But I think there's still a question about how much um, the genetic background contributes to that risk. It may be that actually if you have a genetic background favouring the development of seizures, you're more likely to have seizures uh, as a result of another insult, whether that's a head injury or a tumour or some other cause. That's not proven yet, that's a hypothesis. 
And so by, I guess this is kind of a similar question or a follow-on question, as well as knowing that some genes are causative, can there be within a specific group of their... Do the numbers of patients exist, for example, to do things like genome-wide association studies to look for disease modifiers? So coming back to the earlier question, if there are people with a type of epilepsy, if we can call it that, but we might understand what changes someone's severity of their condition. It's a really good question. And, and it's really interesting that you've hit upon what we are looking on, looking at exactly now. So this is a really important question, I think, because I think there are clues here, potentially, to new understanding and new treatments. So exactly as you say, even though many of these genetic epilepsies are rare, there are still sufficient numbers for some of them to um, develop an understanding of the spectrum of severity and the spectrum of clinical presentations that people might have. So if we take one particular condition that's uh, a, a paradigmatic epilepsy, if you like, an archetypal epilepsy, um, genetic epilepsy, it's called Dravet syndrome, uh, after um, the French pediatric neurologist who first described it, Charlotte Dravet. And this is a really important and intriguing condition. In most individuals who have this condition, it is due to a new alteration, a de novo mutation, in that person in um, the gene encoding um, one of the uh, neuronal sodium channels. The gene is called SCN1A. There's a very recognisable core clinical phenotype, and that's, of course, how the syndrome was first described, because there is a recognisable set of features that people with this condition have. And it's a clinical diagnosis. You don't have to have a mutation SCN1A for the diagnosis to be made, although that's what you usually find. But even in people who've got very characteristic core phenotype, you can still see a really wide phenotypic spectrum. So I see, just because of my interest, I see quite a few people with this condition. And although many have uh, epilepsy, it's difficult to treat, associated with intellectual disability and physical disabilities, such as difficulty walking or difficulty swallowing, for example, you can still see some people who, despite the fact they have the same core phenotype, are still able to walk and talk and eat normally and can hold a conversation. And there must be something that explains that phenotypic spectrum. It's not just because of the different types of mutation in SCN1A that people have. There must be something more. So taking your point up, We've been, we started to look at the rest of the genetic variation in the, in the background, if you like, in a group of people who have this condition, uh, taking advantage of the fact that, in a sense, you've, you've fixed or controlled the main genetic variation causing the condition. Are those genome-wide association studies, I assume, are ongoing at the moment? Or? They are. They are. Yes. <laughs> so very much watch this space. Yes. What sort of tools do you use to do that? Sort of... Has, as you were talking, I can help thinking this sounds like the sort of thing where, you know, you might expect sort of fancy machine learning approaches to sort of come in to sort of both cluster symptoms to try and identify sort of underlying groups, but also maybe even to ultimately relate, um, you know, specific uh, genetic mutations to expected function, maybe even via protein folding. Who knows? 
who knows? Exactly. And there's so many exciting ways to look at complicated data these days. The key, of course, exactly as you've both said, I think, is, is the numbers. Um, and we have got a sufficiently sized group of individuals who've got this condition with known mutations in SCM1A that I think we can begin to start exploring that. It's not thousands and thousands. That would be very hard to do but sufficient that we can begin to use these sorts of methods so we can look comprehensively at genetic variation. We can bring in um, brain imaging data. Uh, we can bring in EEG data as well as the clinical data and then start to use other tools to try to make sense of those data and see where this variation might arise. So machine learning will be one way to do that. Um, Category-wise association studies, another way to do that, another tool to use. This really will depend on the on the depth and quality of the of the information that we're able to secure for each of these individuals in the study. And and has this has the work so far in sort of isolating these different groups? Is it does that has that translated into new treatments yet, or are we still waiting to take uh, that step? Are we sort of building the background understanding still, or have have the last sort of five ten years resulted in differing approaches to actually control epilepsy? So if we go back to thinking about um, single gene causes, and if we, if we stay with that model where we think that a single gene is having the most important effect um, and the pathways that are disrupted are the most important in that individual's epilepsy, then certainly for some of these epilepsies, better understanding has led to uh, more specific treatment options or a better understanding of the available treatment options and which drugs, for example, to use and which ones to avoid. And that's certainly the case. And there are some outstanding examples of what you might call this precision medicine approach um, involving genetic data. I think it is important to say, though, when we talk about precision medicine, that at least I hope that's what we've always been doing, actually. We've always been using all the available information to provide each individual with the best available treatment. What's, what's changed, I think, is that we have much more personalised information from that individual's genome, which empowers the precision medicine approach. But it's not really that the approach is new. The approach is something that we've always tried to do. We just haven't been, uh, we haven't had access to as much information as we do now. With regard to modifiers, I think that's much um, uh, further behind, if you like, and we're not at the point yet where an understanding of the modifiers has um, has come into clinical practice in terms of how you change treatment. I wonder if I could follow up on something that you, you kind of mentioned about. Really, it seems that what is essential to your work is having this real kind of depth of phenotyping of the patient's experience and the patient's kind of symptoms. And I guess if for anyone listening who's not part of the Institute of Neurology, they may not be aware that there's kind of a purpose-built clinic for this, where I think you spend, this is where most of your clinics are based. Is that correct, up at the Chalfont Centre? Yes. So um, so we started an epilepsy genomics clinic some years ago now, um, and that's where we try to bring all of these different strands together. And um, there are lots of good bits to a week, obviously, but it does tend to be one of the highlights of the week uh, when you can um, bring your understanding and the research that's being done um, to life, if you like, and take it back to people who've got these conditions uh, and help people understand what's going on. And that helps you in turn, because 
People who have these rare conditions in their families understand them really, really well. They've often spent years looking after their grown-up children, for example, and have a really detailed understanding. They may not have the vocabulary, and sometimes we all find it difficult to describe what's going on, but their understanding can really guide and inform the research and send you down the important directions and make sure you don't go down, you know, pointless alleyways. It must be really quite empowering for them too to really feel that they're feeding into that process and co-developing almost the the research directions. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's definitely it is a very rewarding um, process for everybody who's involved actually because I think you're exactly right that people feel they're contributing uh, and hopefully preventing the problems their children have had from happening to other people. Um, and we feel, I think, and especially you know, members of the team who maybe spend most of their time behind a screen or in a lab, um, actually taking that back to somebody who's got the problem really gives it a different dimension uh, and I think really motivates their work. So it's a win-win. Um, so I wonder if I could change um, slightly the kind of subject. We've asked you a lot about the kind of genetic epilepsies and the genetic basis for epilepsy. But one of the things that I know you've been working on recently is the kind of environmental modifiers of people's epilepsy. And I was fascinated to find out that climate change may actually be a disease modifier. Could you tell us a little bit about what we know about that, please? This is, I think, a really interesting and important development of what we've been doing. The whole area of genetic epilepsies became interesting to me when I first saw somebody as an adult who turned out to have a genetic epilepsy. He was in his 50s. Um, and at that time, I wasn't really thinking about genetic causes of epilepsy so much. Um, but at some point in his care, the penny dropped uh, and it became clear that he did have a genetic epilepsy. Actually, he had Dravet syndrome. And at that time, the condition had been known as severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy. And so most adult neurologists weren't thinking about it because it was of infancy. So why should it concern us? It doesn't obviously happen in adults. But this person had had seizures for their whole life. And in fact, when you went back to the very first records, which we actually had, more than 50 years old, you could see that he had a very typical history for Dravet syndrome. So we made the diagnosis got genetic confirmation because at that time we weren't thinking that people of this age could have that condition, but he did have a variant in that gene, changed his treatment and significantly improved the control of his seizures. But actually it was, it was studying um, and looking after people with Dravet syndrome that then brought in the whole environmental aspect because it was families of people with Dravet syndrome who started saying that their grown-up child, because I'm an adult neurologist, had seizures that were worse during the hot weather, uh, especially during the heat waves that we've all experienced in the UK and in Europe over the last decade or so. And they had more seizures and um, other features such as lethargy were worse during this time. And then the penny finally dropped again, um, linking my own sort of personal um, concerns and interest in, in climate and environment with my professional work, which I hadn't really put together before. Um, but it became sort of obvious that the climate must potentially have a role um, and must impact 
severity, frequency of seizures, all sorts of features in people with epilepsy. Because we know, for example, that some of these epilepsies have fever-sensitive seizures. And so it makes sense that if the environment changes, then actually the epilepsy might change too. So that was the sort of next turning point, really, in thinking about actually what is going on in these epilepsies and what impact is there of the environment. And are there now data starting to emerge around this? Because as you've just described it, the awareness came from people saying, well, look, this is what's happening with, with my child's condition. But there, is there data kind of emerging on kind of how susceptible people are to these temperature-induced kind of worsening of their condition? If I'm making sense, rather than kind of the individual anecdotes, is there yes. kind of a worldwide yes. view emerging from this? Yes. So uh, I think thinking in this area is really developing rapidly. Um, so when I first started thinking about this, I contacted a few um, colleagues around the world um, tentatively because I had no idea what the response would be. I kind of, I suppose I was a little um, anxious that they would think this was a totally mad idea and that I should get back to my day job. But in fact, that's not what happened. Uh, and they too, I think, had a moment of connection and thought, actually, what might happen, you know, if if everything changes, well, not if, when everything changes. Um, and so we then began to get together and think about this more and try and get more data together. We formed a group called Epilepsy Climate Change, which is just a loose affiliation of people who are concerned about this around the world. And we're trying to get data together. Um, so I think we're still in that stage between anecdote and, and sizable large scale studies, um, but we are getting data together. We are getting signals from a variety of different sources, ranging from uh, larger scale collection of um, seizure data from individuals to nationwide data sets in some countries where they have excellent records of both climate um, and, um, and epilepsy um, admissions, for example. I mean, this is totally fascinating. It's not something I'd ever... I'd ever thought about. Selena mentioned it this morning when we were talking about having what we were going to say to you. And um, I guess it just blew my mind. Have we gone far enough yet to know whether, for example, is it just something like, you know, the mean background temperature is likely to be a factor or is it something like maybe uh, temperature spikes? I guess I'm thinking a little bit like um, febrile convulsions in, in children, I believe, are, are more about the rapid the rate of change rather than sort of sustained body temperature. I wonder if the same might apply to sort of if you step out of an air-conditioned room into like 40 degrees, is that, do you think, I don't want, I don't want to make you say things you don't know already, but I'm, I'm just <laughs> curious what, what your thinking is here. Well, I think these are all really interesting points. And I think once you get thinking about it, you know, all sorts of potential connections and, and uh, complications emerge. So anecdotally, the point you make about the rate of change of temperature seems to be key. Um, so that does seem to be important in febrile seizures, but also uh, in people with Dravet syndrome, many of the families, again, anecdotally report that peak temperatures, so uh, hot days, can certainly make a difference, um, but also rapid changes in temperature. So, for example, one of the mothers um, of a child with Dravet syndrome um, very nicely describes how uh, it's very difficult when it's hot for her to take her son out because one of the comorbidities is um, 
behavioural difficulties or autism spectrum disorder, a number of things that make it difficult, for example, to persuade somebody with this condition to wear a sun hat. So that makes, obviously, the problem worse. And then you've seen these uh, fountains that, that we find in public spaces where people will be cooling themselves off. So, of course, it's a natural thing to do. But in some people have this condition that provokes seizures. That rapid change in temperature seems to provoke seizures. Now, that's still anecdotal and it's still something that we need to explore. But I think it is something that we need to consider um, because although we are obviously warm-blooded creatures and we do thermoregulate, there are limits to that thermoregulation. And I think we're beginning to see where those limits are and how they could be challenged. So you're right, I think, it's not just at, uh, the, the kind of mean temperature, but also temperature peaks. I think it's going to be both. It's fascinating. And I think, again, it kind of, this, it's, hearing this is really powerful to me because it just shows you the, the importance of actually listening to what people who are living with these conditions are telling you um, and kind of actually noticing the patterns when multiple people are coming and giving you slight variations of the same story then you realize no actually there's something here that we need to investigate and I presume that epilepsy wouldn't be the only condition that could be affected by these changes is it known if other neurological syndromes could could be impacted by by this yes absolutely so we already know um, that this is the case for some conditions so for example we know that for some people with um, multiple sclerosis that symptoms may be aggravated or brought on um, by uh, high ambient temperatures. Uh, so that's so that's that's been known for some time, called Utoff's phenomenon. Um, but we also know that for some other conditions, there is growing evidence of a link um, with peak temperatures um, and with higher mean temperatures. There's some quite good data actually on rates of increase of incidence of, of, of various things like stroke or admissions for things, um, uh, including stroke, but also for some mental health disorders associated with increased temperature and hot days. So there's actually more and more evidence um, accumulating to show that, that, uh, that temperature and humidity changes and pollution, of course, associated with, um, with global heating all can have an impact. And so it's another reason, as if, if we didn't need more reasons, but another reason that we actually need to listen to the evidence and take action. And so obviously this conversation is very topical because we've just had the, the COP26 summit. Was this featured in the discussions anywhere, this kind of impact on neurological syndromes? It should have been, right? <laughs> we should be shouting about yes. this, I think. Yes, but. well, given the... Um, the disability that neurological diseases cause globally and the mortality, with the premature mortality with which they're associated, you would think that this would have been high up the agenda. Um, I wasn't at COP26, so I don't know absolutely everything that happened, but it didn't feature highly. Health did feature more than it has done in the past, which is an excellent um, outcome, um, but not specifically neurological diseases to any great extent. It seems like it will be something at least that will gain a lot of momentum in the coming years as people, as, as you say, as the data and the evidence really starts to emerge. I think it's, you know, another reason that we need to get our act together and quickly, I think. I'm curious more on this sort of uh, climate change related uh, neurological questions. Is there any direct link through CO2 concentrations by any chance? 
Is that is there? Should we worry about that on top of just the um, the change in sort of background temperature? Are we also going to see sort of a direct mode of action? Do you think? So it's a re- again a really good question, and we know that humans are very sensitive to um, carbon dioxide concentrations. Um, but I'm probably not the best person to ask this question. Actually, you really need a human physiologist or a, a, a respiratory physiologist to be able to answer the question in terms of the sensitivity, because obviously we're talking about parts per million change in the environmental concentration. Certainly, if you make percentage changes, you know, I don't know, 1% changes or something, those are things that, that I think most of us would feel, uh, and that would lead to a change in our breathing. But whether that sensitivity uh, is at the level that we're talking about the climate, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. Excellent to find out. For the yeah, yes, absolutely. And so I wonder if we could maybe move away from your current research to talk a little bit about you, Sanjay, and how did you, what was the trajectory that kind of brought you into this area? How did you um, first develop your, your, your kind of interest in medicine and your, your interest in epilepsy? Well, um, so when I first started, I was really interested in the in the science, um, and I found that really fascinating. I have to say, I found being a medical student not particularly enjoyable. Um, the time that I was doing, I think we were definitely uh, to be placed in the corner and. Um, not to be heard. <laughs> so I did, I absolutely, I, that wasn't everyone's experience, but I didn't enjoy being a medical student. It was really, I think, when I first did neurology, um, that that uh, excitement of putting the science into practice came back into the work that I was doing. Uh, and then um, I became interested for various reasons in, in nonlinear dynamics. This was a time when fractals had become sort of very popular. Um, and so I was looking to see if I could somehow wangle that into into medical science and, and research. Um, and an opportunity arose which I thought might allow this to take place, and it happened to be in epilepsy. I didn't know anything about epilepsy at all at the time. And I remember that my, um, my clinical supervisor at the time said, do you really want to be doing clinics in epilepsy for the rest of your life? And actually, I do. I have. And I've really, really <laughs> enjoyed it. It's been amazing. Um, and so that's how I got into epilepsy. Uh, and then from there, things just you know developed as all sorts of opportunities arose. It's just chance, really, as I think many things often are. Are there any sort of specific events where you sort of really realised, yeah, this is this is the right one for me? Or, or maybe where you actually did get fractals into the clinic? I'm not sure whether that's how easy that would be to do. I didn't get fractals into the clinic. I definitely got fractals into the science. And that was a, that was a, um, an exciting time. It was, I think, the the excitement of being able to follow your ideas during your PhD and to be given the the leeway to do that. Actually, I had two excellent supervisors who who let me do that, um, and it was nice to be able to develop ideas and to think about things in a different way. And I guess since then there've always been you know turning points. So, for example, the first patient in whom. I made a genetic diagnosis, had a huge impact on the way I thought about um, epilepsy. And in fact, one of the most important things about that was was the fact that it was never too late. You should never give up because even at his late stage of his epilepsies in his 50s with a lifetime, literally, of seizures, 
it still made a huge difference. And that was a, a, a huge lesson. And then I guess you know, the next turning point in terms of bringing the climate um, work into it, they have been, I guess, the key turning points. And were you ever tempted, say, um, you said you sort of started off on medicine and then, um, and then you branched that and did a PhD. Was it ever in doubt that you'd go back to sort of a mixture of research and clinic or were you ever tempted just to stay, uh, stay in research once you'd got there? Um, I think I was attempted a little bit, but at the end of the day, I think what really interests me is the interface between the two and taking the science back to people who are affected by these conditions and in thinking what we can do for people who have these conditions and how we can use science to do that. It's that back and forth which I think really makes... Um, it's what interests me in, in what I do and it's what gets me up and keeps me up. And what would you say are the things at the moment that you're most excited about? It not it can be in your own research or just in the field more broadly? Um, you know, what are the things that you think, yeah, we need to kind of keep an eye on this? It's uh... Gosh, I think there are lots of things that are really exciting. I still think that there's a lot to do in genetics. We're just scratching the surface, really. I think we've been... L- lucky in a sense in that there are some epilepsies where single gene defects can produce um, detectable phenotypes that we can study but I think there's a lot more there still to do there's the whole of the rest of the genome there's the non-coding genome there's the epigenome there's the regulation and you know we understand so little about all of this in real practice so there's a huge amount there to do. And that's certainly, I think, something that I, I find really interesting. But also I think the, the climate change work, I think, is really important because this is something that's going to happen. Even if we stopped all carbon emissions tomorrow, there's embedded changes that are going to happen. And I think we have to understand what that's going to mean for people with these conditions and how best we can help people cope and adapt. And um, just pushing you a bit more, what, what do you think if I said... Next 10 years, what's going to be the sort of the big thing, the big development or the big thing you'll work on? Will it be will it be more sort of feeling out the effects of climate change or do you think there's something new on the horizon? Um, oh, it's so difficult to say, isn't it? Because, of course, something can happen tomorrow that changes your perspective entirely. But I think it's going to be to better understand each individual's epilepsy using all the data that we have available and to put those data together so it's not just looking at the genetic changes, but also thinking about how imaging is telling us what happens over the course of the epilepsy, a sort of diary, if you like, of changes that have happened over time, and how EEG and the microbiome and all sorts of other areas of variation that we haven't looked at. If you put all of those together, can you better understand each individual's epilepsy? Because one of the things that I think has become clear um, over the times I've been doing this, and I calculated that I've seen over 10,000 people with epilepsy. I don't think any of those two people are exactly the same, except two particular individuals who are not related, who have got astonishingly similar conditions, which must be genetic. We haven't sorted it out yet, but it must be genetic. But otherwise, I think everyone is different. They fall into certain categories, but they are all different. And we have really very little understanding of what drives those differences. And yet in those differences might lie, might lie clues to treatment. If someone's got the same condition, but they're much less severely affected, 
Why is that? And can that help us understand somebody who's much more severely affected and what we can do to help them? It's fascinating. And I, I think about this in my own area, a lot of Alzheimer's disease, that we now, we have a, a reasonably good understanding, I would say, in Alzheimer's of the genetic basis. But when I try and think about the number of permutations of genes, environment, <laughs> genetic regulation, you know, diet, lifestyle impact, there are so many different permutations that it makes sense to me exactly what you've just said, that no two people will therefore have the same experience. Um, but as a cell biologist, I think, wow, will we ever, will biology ever keep up? <laughs> will we ever, will we ever manage to disentangle this? So I'm happy to hear your, your kind of optimism around that, because I think you're right. There are just such opportunities there to, to have an understanding that is scientifically interesting, but that will also benefit the patient and their care. So it's kind of nice to hear that optimism. So we're almost out of time and we're going to need to wrap up. But before we do, uh, we, we like to ask all our guests the same last question. Are you ready? This is it. Uh, so what is your favourite fact about the brain? I'm going to disappoint you, I think, actually, because I don't know if I have a favourite fact about the brain. But what I always find really amazing, I think, is how quickly we can think about things and how quickly literally within the course of a sentence you can link so many different ideas together so i'm not sure if that's a fact but but it's certainly fascinating i think i think it's a perfect point to kind of finish and to go away and ponder on how amazing the brain is and we've heard a little bit more from a different perspective today so thank you very much professor sisodia for joining us on this episode of brain stories thank you very much We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking brain stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Susie McCarthy for editing and mixing. And please follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.